Welcome to the Swim Swam podcast. I'm your host, Coleman Hodges. I'm joined today by, uh, I think the only true descriptor is legendary coach, Jack Roach. Jack, how are you doing today? Good, Coleman. Uh, thank you for that introduction. I want you to know that I, I can't remember the first time I watched you, but uh, I, I found it very refreshing. And I also found it, uh, I, I gained knowledge through it and really didn't talk to you until we were in Budapest together by, by chance and happened to be in a lobby waiting on some things to happen. And we happened to merge together and, enjoyed getting to know you a little bit better and uh thank you for what you do in our craft i i really appreciate that and uh and that's actually where i wanted to start today um we did you, you and i you know I, I had seen you on a, on numerous pool decks before and uh i was like this guy just always seems so happy and he and everyone knows who he is um and i i didn't I don't think I knew even knew your name for quite a while. Uh, but yeah, we, we actually got a chance to meet and talk and get to know one another a little at the, you know, during that week uh, before the ISL meet in Budapest this, this past fall. Um, so what was your, you know, you, you've, you've pretty much coached every facet of swimming and the ISL is kind of something brand new to everyone. Um, so what was, you know, being a coach on deck and getting to kind of see the whole process of the ISL, what were some of your takeaways, um, from something that novel to come to swimming? Yeah, I, I guess I have different observations. The, the first one is that having gone to a number of international meets with the United States when they traveled together, uh, there, there, I always felt like the, and obviously there weren't many opportunities for, if any, for the different countries to merge together and have social conversations and get to know each other on a level that allows our community to grow. And I think that's the first thing that I noticed. Different athletes from different countries in the downtime, being able to share a meal together or sitting around just talking. and. I, that can't be anything but healthy for anything that you're involved with. And the, the competition itself, it was, it was unique and it was exciting. You're running through all of these different events in two hours and it, it gives people an opportunity to probably address challenges that they may, might have in, in their competitive environment at times and, and also opportunities to hone what they do well. I, I, I honestly, I know that the verdict's still out, but that first year and that first pass, I didn't see a downside to it. I, I, maybe the, the skepticism or the hesitation for good reasons that it might interfere with most of those athletes' uh, ultimate goal, which was making the Olympic teams and cautiously approaching that made a lot of sense and 
I know from the vantage point I was with the team I was involved with, there was no pressure put on any athlete to be at any specific meets. That was completely up to them. And at that point, I, I felt like it was really healthy. I will say that uh, the athletes from the different countries might have had a little bit more growth beneficially than the U.S. because they've never been a part of a small team as in a college environment. And I, I felt like I was, a little, that made me a little bit nervous, but of course they should do that. That's good, right? <laughs> well, was, was there any international swimmers that you did get to know a little better that you had never met before, but you, you had heard of, you know, you knew of through their swimming? Yeah, I, I'm pretty, uh, I'm pretty aggressive in a, I hope in a positive way when it comes to being on a pool deck with athletes. And I, I most of those athletes I knew by name and we had had conversations before. I, I really enjoy uh, walking into an environment that's not part of the U.S.'s and talking. If there's a coach there that I know and I start to ask about an athlete and then introducing myself to that athlete, I, 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 I have this philosophy that there are only two things that shape our lives and it's people and events. And when I, when I see someone that I feel like, golly, they're, they're unique and they have this quality that I would like more of myself. I, I, maybe I take advantage of my age. I'm not sure, but I, I don't hesitate to go up and talk to them about, what's their life like and who influenced their lives and, you know, you go back to their mom and dad and it just, uh, it seems to open up pretty comfortable conversations and I, I hope that they know it's as sincere as I mean it to be. Yeah. Well, I mean, and it seems like from my perspective, you've been doing that throughout your entire career. You have been, uh, opening doors and bringing athletes together um, to, to kind of help bridge, you know, because oh, I think in athletics generally, a lot of times what can happen is that you have a, a rival or a competitor and you don't know them as a person. You just know them as a athlete and that, and then you start to build their persona or what, what you think they're like without actually getting to know them as a person. And to me, it seems like you have been trying to bridge that gap and, and get to know people and, and, and help people get to know other people um, throughout your career. I, I would like to believe that I, I recognize that as being my purpose in life. And certainly when I was named the, the National Junior Team Director, it, it was quickly obvious to me that if I could introduce a Missy Franklin to a Natalie or a Dana. I mean, it just became so obvious that back to people and events, right? You expose them to to people that they look up to, and those people become friends. And there, there's more developed than just the sport of swimming in that respect. It's like values and character, and yeah. So I I, I do believe that. I found that to be my main responsibility and something that I enjoy doing anyway. And the, the, the other part of that is, is being involved with the coach, working with an athlete that 
may found, find themselves somewhat isolated or out on an island and going, well, we talk about their struggles and going, well, I think I know someone that can reach out to you and help you out and, and making those connections. And yeah, that was very fun. And it was also rewarding. So you, you didn't even miss a beat. That was, that was my next <clears throat> stepping stone was, um, you know, not only were you the national junior team director, but uh, from, from what I've read and you can maybe set the record straight, but you created you, or you helped create at least the national junior team. Yeah. You know, that was a, that was certainly a Mark Schubert and probably Lindsay Mantanko thought process before I was hired that they felt there was, there were national junior team programs, but they, they were, there wasn't, a, there wasn't much attention or effort put into it for whatever reason. Maybe that was part of the evolution of USA swimming, but they, you know, FINA wasn't really, too involved in it. They would have one meet a year and it was in December. So it had no real value whatsoever. And mm -hmm. the, the junior Pan packs were going on and uh, they were every other year and they were during the summer and they were good, but to qualify for the national junior team before I got there, you had to make a certain times, never took a full team. And when Mark hired me and, he uh, allowed me to basically take the reins of it. I, I started to look at results in the past, and obviously Australia had a very strong long-term athlete development program, which in, involved the junior national team on a very high level. And I spent a great deal of time with Bill Sweetnam, and uh, we talked about what they were doing, and it became pretty obvious that, well, this is, why don't we just mirror the best swim team country in the world and follow their suit? And so that's ultimately what happened. And then with uh, Mark's involvement in, in FINA and certainly his involvement with uh, competition on a world level, we were able to get FINA to start the junior world championships on off years in the summer at the end of the summer so it would be a championship meet and allow and get the junior pan packs to switch the years that they were doing it at the time when i started you would have um, you would have world championships in december in that same year you would have uh junior pan packs and then nothing for two years and I think I think the junior worlds were only every four years. I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure I think they were. And so okay. getting those dates changed and then all of a sudden like that that created some excitement. You know, all of a sudden there was a big championship meet to go to on a a world level for someone that was under the age of eighteen. Sure. Eighteen and under. Yeah. I mean I I think it's it's it seems like it has evolved into a really great thing. Um, for instance, I talked, I spoke with Carson Foster just uh, last week, I think. And, you know, he gave me his, his top three swims that he had swum of all time. And I think all three of them were either from a junior worlds or a junior pan pack meet. Um, and I, it, you know, it makes sense that you, you put a junior, in in a position that kind of mirrors 
a senior level world championships or pan packs meet and and they're going to kind of get used to that environment and then you know that that development and assumably also that drive is is just increased as they become a senior national level swimmer yeah yeah i agree i i can remember two incidences where i thought that this is really healthy even for the national team to observe and uh after the 12 olympics i may be wrong on this it could be eight but <laughs> with the the junior world or the junior pan packs were in hawaii and michael phelps just happened to be on vacation then in hawaii and he called me and asked me if there was anything he could do. And I go, well, this is perfect. Can you come over one night and watch part of the meet? And he said, absolutely. And uh, I'll never forget, like, the impact, obviously, that he made, not just on the U.S. team, but every single country that was there. But I'll also, I, I won't forget the impact it made on Michael because he, we, we had dinner together that night and he talked about how he had never seen that kind of excitement generated in an international meet because of the age of the kids. It's obvious, right? It's so brand new to them. And it's so, uh, it's just a exciting introduction to international competition. And then at a, uh, a world cup, we, we went from doing both those meets to adding a different, additional travel meets that people in events shape your life so to to get a young person used to going through passport exchanges taking taking their equipment to a meet and then packing up and going to another meet it it only made sense that that would be the progression that we would go in as long as it was affordable and when we first started doing that the uh the money, a lot of the money was placed on the LSC or the individual club or the family. And, you know, eventually it, it got some traction and started to move forward. But one of the first meets we went to, Michael and Missy Franklin came to those meets as the mentors. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the impact it had on Missy, I'll never forget too. She had been to one, uh, junior team trip in Vancouver and that was it. And then I, I think the real eye opener for me was uh, Katie Hoff. I asked her to go as a mentor to uh, world championships in Dubai. And uh, I, world championships, junior worlds. And right. I, I watched the impact she made on those kids. And I watched the, the impact those kids made on her and you know, she shared with me that likely her career might have been somewhat different had she had that kind of experience. Her first international experience was the Olympic Games in four. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, do you, was there a specific instance that you can recall um, what, uh, of, of, a, of a junior teamer being impacted by one of those models and then, you know, seeing their progression on an international stage up to today? Yeah, I mean, there's so many of them that right. came through the national junior team. And every one of the Cal guys that we're watching now that are either just out of college a couple of years, Ryan, uh, 
Jacob, Sally. I mean, every one of those guys came through and, and many of the, I mean, and that's just one, one team, right? And you're looking at what the national junior team is doing now with Mitch involved and you see that stuff going on as well. Sure. <laughs> uh, so that, my next point, um, how, how funny is it that you went from Austin to eventually being the national junior team director, your successor, Mitch, the national junior team director is now heading back to your old, your other old role as the assistant of the Texas women's team. Yeah. Not only that, but I left Texas as the women's assistant (laughs) (laughs) and he's coming in as the women's assistant. Yeah. There's some sort of parallel world movie in that area. Right. And Mitch has become a, a real good friend to me and, yeah, he's he's a mentor and a teacher and a friend, and it's uh, I feel like yeah, it seems right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So so you were in Austin for for you were coaching at Texas for ten years. Is that right? Right. Uh huh. And I I was for most well, let's see, from ninety through ninety two, I was the club head coach. Mm-hmm. And Longhorn Aquatics had to change its name because of NC2A, the University of Texas interpretation of what the NC2A wanted. And they didn't want to take a chance with that gray area of club coaching and or club swimming and college swimming in the same pool. So we went from Longhorn Aquatics to Texas Aquatics. Okay. And at some point we went back to Longhorn Aquatics. We even had to have a different logo the the texas longhorn did not look pretty for texas Aquatic <laughs> for a few years and so all that shifted back and then and uh so i worked with the women's team and the club team through 93 and then uh was primarily just with the, the club team until 2097 uh, and then i was the women's assistant coach through 2000 okay uh, so what, and, and the head coach of the women at the time was Jill Sterkel. The, when Jill I, Sterkel. when I first started, it was Mark Schubert. And then when I left, okay. it was Jill Sterkel. Mark okay. left, Mark left there in 92 and went to USC. Okay. Uh, so what, what did you get out of coaching college? Was that your only stint of coaching college? It was. And I, uh, you know, I, I, I made a, a conscientious decision to leave uh, coaching at the University of Texas because I did not feel like I was doing that good of job supporting Jill Sterkel, the head coach. And when I say that, I felt like we had we did the same things so very well together, mm-hmm. and I just didn't feel like I could fill in the gaps that both of us. Uh, identify in terms of recruiting and uh it, it ended up being a very good thing for jill you know i i uh, it was a hard decision to make and i didn't go back and i left coaching at that point and uh yeah that's kind of a side side story that very few people know about but 
would you care to share it? <laughs> well, I mean, that, that was it. I, I left, okay. I left the sport for a while and my wife and I moved to Port Aransas, a little island off of Texas. And we bought a, a B and B and I went to Key West and bought a 50 foot catamaran and sailed it back to Texas and started <laughs> kayak excursions and sunset cruises and dolphin watches. You know, that, that seems like that would be the perfect, you seem like you would be perfect for that. I got so bored and I got so tired <laughs> of Jimmy Buffett. In, in a past life before I started coaching, I was big into sailing and had a, sailboat and spent a lot of time in the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. So then what, so what brought you into coaching? Yeah, I, uh, I always knew I was going to coach and I, I did more than just swim through a younger age through high school, but I started swimming and I would always go back to swimming. I wrestled and I ran track. Uh, and my swim coaches were, a very big influence on who I am and what I viewed my life to be in the future. And I, I, I wasn't in a hurry to get there, but I knew at some point I was going to uh, coach and it was going to be swimming. And what was your first coaching job like? Yeah, well, it was, there were, my first coaching job was with uh, a man named Bob Osley and Bob was the head coach of Fort Lauderdale swim team at the time. He, uh, he coached people like Andy Cohen, who set a world record at 18 in the 100 freestyle. And the Hall of Fame pool had offices attached to it. And the Fort Lauderdale Beach Patrol was one of the offices there. And I, I moved to South Florida post-Vietnam and, and got a job lifeguarding on the beach and went to uh, Florida Atlantic University. And while I was doing that, I would go in and I was always interested in what was going on at the Hall of Fame pool and I would go watch competition. I'd go in early and watch practices and Bob, Bob and I got to know each other and he gave me my first part-time job as a swim coach with Fort Lauderdale swim team. So how long were you there? Uh, it was off and on. At the time, I was trying to save enough money to buy a sailboat. And uh, I was living in a Volkswagen camper in the Hall of Fame uh, parking lot <laughs> <laughs> to save money. <laughs> and uh, I did that probably off and on for, I, 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 would, I would travel during the summer. Normally, I would go down to Mexico and I would come back and lifeguard and go back to school and save more money and you know I did that off and on for a good five years. That sounds like the life. Good and bad right? Most <laughs> wagon camper can get pretty small. That's that's true. Um, <laughs> that's so cool. Uh, so you've 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 lived in a lot of places. What, what would you say you have a favorite or what 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 would be a favorite thing about any, any of the number of places you've lived? Yeah, it, it all goes back to the people. I, you know, Austin, Texas was, I lived, I was, I, I grew up in North Carolina, but right after the military, I, I did move to South Florida. And I moved to Fort Lauderdale when the population was 30,000. And the ocean was just 
so beautiful and there were no crowds at all and you know I, I was really into the water and um, I, I bought a catamaran and I was sailing that offshore sometimes I would go to the Bahamas in that with another guy who had one and I, I absolutely loved that lifestyle and I, I loved Fort Lauderdale as time went on it it got very crowded and I went from lifeguarding and after I returned from sailing, that's when I started to pursue a full-time job coaching and was hired at Mission Bay in Boca Raton, Florida by Mark Schubert again. And uh, yeah, that was, that was a great job, but it, it, it went into tough times. It, it had some financial issues and eventually staff wasn't getting paid there and, that's at that point I realized I had to leave and, and move to uh, and went on to Texas from there. And I have to say Austin, Texas is one of my favorite places. And uh, probably uh, it, it would be a toss up after that. I mean, I, I'm, I'm learning to embrace where I am right now. It's, uh, it, it's about people and being a part of tide swimming has become a family and a community to me here now too. And, Reconnecting with the ocean. I have a couple of boats and some surfboards and yeah, that, that's been fun. Yeah. What, uh, what drew you to Virginia? Uh, my wife at a late age decided that she wanted to go to medical school and she applied to different schools and um, we ended up in Norfolk, Virginia, which is really it's part of Virginia Beach that they're different cities, but they feel the same to me. So in 2015, we moved here. Okay. Thanks. Um, all right. So maybe let me ask you uh, for, for something like a top three. Do you have uh, favorite swimming stories that you like to tell or races that stand out to you? I know you've, you've seen it all and, and, and been to it all, but do you have a few favorites? You know, I, I do. And most of them I've shared so many times I, because they are favorites, right? But I, I guess I would start this conversation by saying that there, there are very few athletes that I've been fortunate enough to work, work with that I wouldn't be able to, that I would be able to share a story with that because I've learned from them. I, I think maybe the, one of my favorite stories is to talk about world championships uh, in 2009 in a relationship that started to form between Aaron and Aaron Pearsall and I. And, you know, I, I happened to be there with USA Swimming and Aaron's uh, head coach was not there. He, he, did, he didn't go on the trip and Aaron was in the 200 backstroke and this this event was in Rome, and it, it's hard to describe the the venue and and do it justice. But this this area was where the 1960 Olympic Games were held, and the venue was set up where the the spectators were in a, a horseshoe shaped uh, sitting area at the start end of the pool. And there are these olive trees that you can see they're higher than where they're sitting right above them. And every evening when finals were to start, uh, 
the sun would be setting and it just was always spectacular. The sun setting with those olive trees and then the other layer, all these colorful dressed people. For some reason, Germany had brought a ton of young kids there. They were always coming like in these costumes that were just absolutely like stunning to look at and enjoy. It just added to the environment. And, and so the, the finals of the 200 back, uh, I was on the pool deck uh, getting splits for Aaron before he was going to race the 200 back. And uh, by chance, Aaron had miscalculated what he needed to do in the 100 back in that event and didn't make the finals. <laughs> and so obviously, as an adult, I'm concerned with that and it's not something that you really talk about with an athlete probably until the whole thing's over. At least that's my approach. <laughs> and in, anyway, Aaron always had the reputation of being one of the last ones in the water. And this was one of those cases where he's really the only one left in the water and they're getting ready to set the pool up and they're starting to call for the first event. And I had timed Aaron in a 50 backstroke and given him his time. And we were at the turn into the pool where we could look back and see what I had just described to you with the sunset in the venue. Mm -hmm. And uh, I give him his time and we, we have a brief discussion and I start walk away and he goes, Jack, wait, come back. And I walk back to him and, uh, he grabs two of the chairs that the judges sit in that are still kind of in disarray because they hadn't set up that into the pool yet. And he pulls them together and he goes, sit down. And I, I sit down and, uh, he, he, he literally puts his arm around me. He goes, take a look at this. He goes, look at the sunset. Look at these people. Think about where we are. And, and he starts to talk about, you know, he's so good at being in the present moment. And, and I'm listening to all this happen, and, and I'm for a while it's unsettling to me because I feel like he needs to get going. It's, you know, he needs to get ready and go race. And finally, I just went, I'm giving in to this because it did feel right. And, um, you know, we sat there for a while, and, and then and we had just a discussion on anything but swimming. And then I got up and walked away and I looked back and he's still sitting there. And I, it's one of those situations and there are not many of the national team swimmers that I couldn't say this about where I'm going, here I am 40 years older than this guy and I'm learning lessons from people like that. And talk about living in the moment. And, and then, you know, the, the, the icing on the cake is I, when I walked away, I thought this guy's fine. I mean, you know, Nothing magical happens if you aren't living in the moment. If you aren't in the present moment, nothing really magical happens. And he went on to set the world record that's still the world record now at that race. So that that has a, a very, it has a real impact on me in a number of ways. It's I reflect on that because when I'm not in the present, I think about, you know, does that happen? with someone like Aaron, if he's not in that place in life, I, maybe, but I doubt it. Not like it happened that night. And I, and I feel like that's one of the, the biggest lessons that we need to learn in, in life, but it's, 
And sport teaches that very well. They talk about flow state, right? And, and that's, what, that's what it is. It's dropping into that direct perception where there's no past, there's no future, and you're really maximizing and enjoying this time that you have while you're in it. And it's so hard to do if you aren't willing to do that hard work that allows you to come to terms with that and just let go. Man, that's a good one. I mean, nothing magical happens if you aren't living in the present moment. It just does not. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I'm 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 just trying to soak that all in. That was <clears throat> that was pretty powerful. <clears throat> um. Whew. Yeah, that's that's a good that's a good that's that's a good one. <laughs> uh, so that you know, yeah, you talked about a world championships, but um, I believe you've been, you know, behind the scenes of the last three Olympics, um, for Team USA in, in one respect or another. Yeah, you know, from two thousand and eight through sixteen, I, I went to every single international competition even when there were two going on a week from each other. And that, what, what a great learning experience for me. I, you know, I, I had the opportunity to not be as emotionally involved as a personal coach. Mm -hmm. The stakes, although they were important to me, they, they weren't something that I had to take and analyze what I did right or what I did wrong. And, that allowed me to be this observer that provided information for me to, to maintain connection and observations and share. And I, uh, I think that at some point I realized that that's, this, this can be valuable if, if, I, if I take it in and dis distribute it the right way to both coach and athlete. And I, I didn't always do a good job of that, but I, I, did, I did honor the fact that that was a big responsibility for the role that I had taken. Sure. And so, you know, I feel like I, I have been in a similar situation on a much smaller scale. You know, my, um, there were a few times when as a club coach, you know, I have been in a meet with, with the senior level athletes that I didn't personally coach, but I've, you know, I knew personally I've assisted with. Um, and so, and, you know, if, for example, if an athlete comes up to you and, and they're kind of freaking out or nervous or panicking before a race, I, I always, um, it was kind of a, a, uh, an interior struggle for me <laughs> To, to give them advice because it's like, well, you know, what if I tell them this thing and then that's not what their coach would have said and then they go swim a terrible race, you know, or, or, or something similar. Um, have, have you ever, I'm sure you encountered so many situations like that. Um, yes. And, you know, and sometimes I probably didn't handle it right, but somewhere along the line, I realized that I cannot, and even on any level, I cannot provide any information to 
a young person that they don't already possess. And I, I truly believe that if there's a community surrounding them that allows them to fail safely and come back and figure it out on their own. And so I started to have discussions with athletes by asking them questions that I thought might help them answer that they already had. And in most of my discussions, as I became a little bit more, uh, I guess, as I evolved in my position as really a consultant more than anything else was how can I help them ask the questions that they already have and maybe they don't even know how to ask yet. And then I felt like I couldn't go wrong. I, I truly believe when you get out of the water, there's only two questions as an athlete you need to ask yourself if you didn't succeed at something. And one was I unable to do it. And the other was, am I unwilling to do it? And, and when you can kind of drill into those two, then you start to understand the struggles that that weight might have. Uh, could you break those two questions down a little more? Yeah, I think that I can. It, it, at least in my observation, if you're un, if you're unable to do something, then then that's that's a discussion that you can have with your coach on what maybe could have been done differently physically to approach that race at that time and and maybe it's exactly what the coach thought would happen you know I I think that like I I often look at like correcting stroke or talking to someone about a strategy in a race that they continue to make the same mistake in over and over again is sort of like a commercial like how many times does someone have to watch a commercial before they go out and buy the product, right? It's it's all of a sudden it might connect. So so that's to me that's the unable part. The unwilling part is the struggles that are probably going on emotionally in their lives, whether it relates to the sport or not. It end up ends up affecting performance, and and that's a whole different discussion. But it allows you to separate the physical from the emotional or the mental struggles. And sometimes that's a difficult thing for a coach to do. And it's certainly a difficult thing for the athlete to do. That's, so two questions. Uh, I think that I've narrowed it down to that. You know, I, <laughs> I, I used to talk about fear, you know, and, and it's the business terms, uh, fail forward, fail fast, fail frequently were terms that I used to use a lot early on. And, you know, you, you don't really test your limits until you fail. And then you learn how to work, walk out on that ledge and let some pebbles fall, but you don't fall off yourself. And then you probably reach your full potential at that point. But I, I don't think that that's the best way to approach someone who does fail. You have to come up with discussions that like allow that young person to I almost think about it as like you're you're hanging from a a vine in a tree and you know that you need to if you want to go in a certain direction maybe that vine was okay for a while but you're going to have to go to a different vine and that other vine may look a little bit scarier to you but it's a quicker path to where you're trying to go even though it's more of a challenge and 
you may not know whether you're going to be able to, whether that vine's going to hold you or not, or you're going to be able to hang on to that vine to get to that place. But if you've been on the other vine for any length of time, you've got all the tools to hang on to that vine. Even if you fall, you can get back up. And not being afraid to uh, test your limits is, I mean, we talk about it all the time and everyone knows it. But the terminology to connect with someone is, is something that you always have to challenge yourself with. We all see the world so differently. And you may talk to someone a certain way with some kind of terminology and they go, well, I've got that. And you may have that same conversation with someone else and use the same terminology and they don't get it. Mm-hmm. And that's not because they don't want to get it. It's because you aren't seeing the world the way they see the world. So how do I readdress it? And I, I feel like I am always working at finding a different way to approach a question. Yeah. I, I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, but do you have, can you give me one more story um, about, about that method um, that, that of when you thought that that, that was successful? Yeah. When you, when you talk to an athlete uh, through a failure and they kind of came out on the other side of it. Yeah, I, I would like to think that you have a number of those, but I, I'll use Jimmy Fegan, and I, I can't remember what world championship it was, but he had been on the 4 by 100 free relay, and he had, he had not done what he was capable of doing on his leg of that relay, and a few days later, he had the 100 free, and we spent a lot of time just reconnecting him with what would Eddie Reese and Chris Kubik be talking to him about at this time. And and it started there, but it also, it got a lot deeper than that. It got into areas of, uh, you know, how is this going to affect your next race? And we, we kept, we kept going back to one situation when it doesn't go right, if you can let that go, and once again, if you can stay in the moment and enjoy what you're doing, the results are going to be the best they are regardless of what happens. And Jimmy ended up getting second in the 100 free and d- did a best time. And, you know, I, I certainly wasn't responsible for that, but I, that, that, was, that was a situation that really stands out in my mind of, it. like, Jimmy – figured it out you know he he was able to let go and and set himself up to to be in a situation where he could race and not and it's so hard when you have one bad race at a meet to walk away from that and you know that's uh that's mental toughness it's what's the next best thing when everything's going wrong you can have those discussions with eddie and chris much later but what's the next best thing now? And and that might not work either, but let go and what's the next best thing? That's mental toughness. And certainly the athletes that go to those meets understand mental toughness. Uh, that was the 2013 World Championships. Thank you. Yeah. I was I in re- Barcelona, right? Yes. I, yeah. I, 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 knew, I knew where it was. <laughs> I remember that you know, uh, watching results from that meet vividly. Um, well, 
Jack, I think, uh, I, I know I've certainly learned a lot um, from this past 45 or so minutes, but um, thank you so much for your time and your insight on, uh, on our sport. Thank you. And I hope someday you can get down to Virginia Beach and take a look at tide swimming. I, I have to promote them because I have so much respect for what's going on here with Richard Hunter, who's the new head coach. Oh, I, yeah, I'd love to. I, I was, I was just in Virginia this past November and I think I actually went to Virginia, the, the Virginia beach area for the first time. And, um, I haven't spent enough time there, so I, I will have to come down. You have a place to stay. <laughs> I appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much, Jack. Matt Coleman, it's good to see you and be well. Hey, do you love swim swim as much as I do? Do you want hours of endless practice footage, race video, and a guide to the best pancakeries in the country? Then subscribe to our YouTube channel below and follow us on social media at swim swim news on Twitter and Instagram. If we get a million followers, I might just eat a million pancakes. Only one way to find out.